Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Adelaide Writers Week. I'm Jo Case, and I'm the author of Boomer and Me, a memoir of motherhood and Asperger's, and I'm a bookseller at Imprints here in Adelaide. I'd like to acknowledge that this land that we meet on here today is the traditional land for the Ghana people and that we respect their spiritual relationship with their country. We also acknowledge that the Ghana, the Ghana people as the custodians of the Adelaide region and that their cultural and heritage beliefs are still vitally important to the living Ghana people today. I'm really delighted to be chairing today's session with Nisha Dolan and Jessie too. In a moment, I'll introduce you to them and their work, but first, just a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, if you could please turn your phones to silent. If you are tweeting or Instagramming, the hashtag is ADLWW. And we ask you to support our Authors and Adelaide Writers Week by purchasing books in the book tent. And all of the money from purchasing books in the book tent goes back into Adelaide Writers Week and making events like this happen. Uh, and please be COVID safe and follow the messaging on the screens and in the garden. While it's great to see you all here, we do need to ensure everyone is physically distanced. This is crucial as it is a key and condition of our COVID management plan approved by SA Health. So before we commence, especially for those of you who are standing, please move yourselves apart if you need to and ensure that you uh, maintain social distance. Thank you, and uh, now we can get started. So uh, I'm going to introduce uh, Jessie and, uh, and Nisha one by one and give you just a, a little tiny introduction to their works. Um, these two witty, incisive debut novels, Nisha Dolan's Exciting Times and Jessie Two's A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing were among my very favorite books of 2020. Nisha Dolan is an Irish writer born in Dublin. She studied English literature at Trinity College Dublin and Oxford University. Exciting Times is her first novel and an excerpt from it was published in The Stinging Fly. Exciting Times is whip smart, quick quipping and both funny and moving, often in the same sentence. It's also deeply conscious of class, race and colonialism in both Ireland and Hong Kong. 22-year-old Irish expat Ava spent her abortion fund on moving to Hong Kong, where she supports herself teaching English. Just months after meeting British banking executive Julian, she moves in with him from her cramped shared apartment. He insists he's not her boyfriend, though they have sex and he pays for everything. With Julian, Ava is sardonic and deliberately attached, uh, detached. When Julian is out of town, she meets and falls for Edith, a beautiful Hong Kong resident with impeccable style and considerable charisma. With Edith, Ava is madly in love and more herself than she is with anyone else, though she tells neither Julian nor Edith about the other's existence. And Jessie too, who you see here with me, uh, trained as a classical violinist for more than 15 years and has taught music at schools in Sydney and refugee camps in the Middle East. Jessie has won several poetry and writing awards and now works as a journalist at Women's Agenda. Her first book of poetry was released in 2018 and A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing is her first novel. 
A lonely girl is a dangerous thing is a spiky, uncompromising and virtuosic debut novel about a former child prodigy violinist who had a breakdown on stage at 15 and, in her early 20s, is slowly rebuilding her career. Since her breakdown, Jenna has thrown herself into sex as she once did her music, as a source of validation as well as pleasure. Jessie pulls off the difficult task of casting the former as dangerous and the latter as sometimes joyful and unashamed, often colouring the same sexual encounters with both tones. I especially loved the way that this book explores being an artist, the roles of obsession, natural talent and hard work in cloning your craft and shaping the self. It's a deft exploration of the messiness of atypical characters figuring out early adulthood while exploring issues of desire, race and ambition. And in a, a very brief moment, I'll be talking to uh, Nisha and Jessie. And before that, we'll, we'll hear each of them briefly read from their work. At the end of the session, um, I'll be taking your questions from the mic in the middle there. So if you think of anything you'd like to ask either of the uh, authors, please do store them away um, if they occur to you as we talk. And of course, uh, Jessie here will be signing her books at the book tent at the end of the session. Please join me in welcoming Nisha and Jessie to the stage and screen. <laughs> Welcome, Nisha. <laughs> um, would you still like Hi. to read first? Um, yeah, grand. Um, so I'll just go from the start of chapter one because I don't. Sounds great. Um, have any good ways of setting things up. So, July 2016. My banker friend Julian first took me for lunch in July, the month I arrived in Hong Kong. I'd forgotten which exit of the station we were meeting at, but he called saying he saw me outside Keywell Bakery and to wait there. It was humid. Briefcase bearers clocked out of turnstiles like reading genets. The tannoy blurred at first Cantonese, then Mandarin, and finally a British woman saying, please mind the gap. Through the concourse and up the escalators, we talked about how crowded Hong Kong was. Julian said London was calmer, and I said Dublin was too. At the restaurant, he put his phone face down on the table, so I did the same, as if me too, this representative professional sacrifice. <laughs> Mindful he'd be paying, I asked if he'd like water, but while I was asking, he took the jug and poured. Work's busy, he said. I barely know what the hell I'm doing. Bankers often said that. The less knowledge they professed, the more they knew, and the higher their salary. Thank you. <laughs> Jessie, would you like to read us? I know Jessie's also reading from the beginning of her first chapter. Yes, so. I will. It's one of the many parallels between the two. <laughs> the ceremony lasts longer than anyone expected. We are gathered at the last minute to provide the music. The wife of the dead man had insisted on having the funeral at noon, dragged from our Saturday morning sleep-ins by a text at 9am. We, as in the orchestra, He's old students. It's a pop-up funeral. I suppose all funerals are pop-up. Nobody plans on dying. Neither did I plan on being inside a chapel closet with a bassoon player gripping his hair as he spread my legs apart. Pantyhose down, donut rings around ankle, cunt salivating. His tongue slips inside my mouth. We are upright heaving our bodies against each other, fingers struggling at his belt. I'd known the boy from Young Performers Awards when we were both 10. 
He had braces, a scar over his left eye, and bad breath that smelt like blue cheese. I felt sorry for him, the kind of pity that was entirely self-serving. I knew this, yet felt no shame. He took pity on me too, I think, because I was the only other Asian who made it to the final round of the comp, which was unusual. Usually, we dominate the podium. Now we were newly minted college graduates reunited. Better hair, better skin, better sense. Thank you. <laughs> it's a great little introduction to the tone of each of your books. Um, and I'd like to just kick off by asking you both a question. Um, you're both, uh, your young women narrators, Ava and Jenna, live in societies where a white male identity is the default normal, with everyone else considered a variation on that. They're both very aware of where they sit in society's power structure and how they're disadvantaged and advantaged in terms of class, wealth and race. And I wonder if you could um, talk about how does that affect the way those, um, your narrators think about themselves? And, and does it mirror a similar awareness of these things um, on your own parts? Who'd like to go first? Um, I'll, I guess I'll start. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think I keep thinking, because I, I engage with the world so much through literature, I, mm. um, I think reading a book is really the most like, intense and searing and authentic way of like penetrating someone authentically, you know? Mm. So, um, I, and there is to some degree something about like the inseparable, and you can't really separate real, like the stories we live and the stories that we read. And so really what I was trying to do um, with my character was um, funnel her through what, a, what the experiences that I have had mm. and then kind of exponentially expand on that based on my own worldview because, mm. like, I keep thinking how all the books that I ever grew up reading really centred the male perspective, especially mm. the white male's perspective. You know, every book or movie or music I, ex I consumed as a kid was, like, threaded through the male consciousness. And, like, it, there's a way in which the world has managed to, like, make that the universal emblematic, like, representation of the human condition. Mm. And, like, even, even, like, when I did read female perspectives like you know um Jane Eyre it was still funnel like it was still mediated through the white female perspective and mm. so I couldn't even relate to that because my race made me so much different and so I just really was so conscious of wanting to represent myself and being like unapologetic about being completely selfish when I write fiction mm. and putting myself on the page so that I my life meant something to myself yeah yeah, so so it sounds like um, yeah. I, I think we'll, we'll talk later about autobiographical fiction. The, yeah, autobiographical fiction. But it sounds like, uh, or the way in which your novels are not autobiographical fiction, I should say. But it sounds like you um, draw on aspects of your your life or things that you've felt, which is quite different from that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 Um, Nisha, what about you? Yeah, I think uh, that really chimes with uh, the sort of considerations that I had in mind in terms of first-person narrators mm. encompassing character development and world building in a way that you 
can't easily disentangle because if you create a first person narrator whose consciousness is so divorced from their politicized body that also tells you something about them maybe something mm. different than if they're aware of their actual place in the world but you're still creating someone whose um, ideas of what's important and how they're situated are apparent even from what they choose to include or not to include so then I think in many ways the more plausible choice and the choice that you have to do the least um, gymnastics to justify mm -hmm. is one where that character knows what the consequences of that politicized body are. I would have a much harder time writing, say, an Irish woman who didn't think about abortion law. I mean, obviously it's easier to defer to tradition in other ways, but mm then and you know when there's a disjuncture between tradition and life obviously that's um where you rush in to try to fill the gap but in terms of how it relates to my own consciousness i i think mm. not so much because i always start very small with how i have my narrators think about things and then if there happens to be overlap then mm. you know well and good but i i think my point of departure is just how would this person feel in this room but then obviously because um the nature of um social systems is that they categorize us that that can obviously then have inflections that ring true for other people yeah no that that's interesting i i guess did, did you both, um, because you're, like I say, your characters are so aware of all of these things on a really everyday basis that, you know, um, of, of where they sit in the world and of class and race and, you know, it's it's obvious just in, um, or even that little bit that you read at the beginning, Nisha, you know, that, that little um, detail where... Um, Ava puts her phone face down um, as well as Julian does it and she does it too as if she's really busy and you know she's kind of you know signaling that or trying to you know play along with you oh, I, I'm also a busy and important person just there are so many little details like that embedded um, and I guess I wonder is is that something that you both notice like do you notice those sorts of little things on a regular basis the same way your narrators are do you have that kind of commentary going on in your head as well or was that something that when you were writing you were looking for in a way you don't normally commentary on what uh, commentary on um, just thinking about how those how little things represent you know class disparity or you know race wealth those sorts of things I think if you're someone in a position if you're someone who's outside of whiteness if you're someone who's mm. outside of maleness if you're someone outside of ableism or you know heterosexuality mm. you're never inevitably like always finding yourself in a space where you are the minority and so you have to develop that sense of self-awareness mm. because um nobody looks at you like when I walk into a space um like my whole life growing up the spaces that I moved around nobody ever looked at me and so what happens is you like you become very good at observing mm. and then you have this constant dialogue with yourself in your head and that makes you very self-aware and that gives you observations that someone who is in the limelight um can like naturally obtain and so mm. like when I was writing this book definitely I was just kind of pouring everything that I've ever thought about on the page 
and then a novel comes through when you extract all the gunk that you know editing <laughs> brings about. Yeah, that's really, and, and I think that idea that if you're an outsider or on the fringes in some way, you naturally observe, um, or you have to observe the little things and conventions and things a lot more than um, if you're if you are the default person, you know, the default white male. Do you do you think so? Do you think that's the case, Nisha? Um, I like definitely. There's a safety aspect to navigating the world where along axes that you're marginalised, you need to be more aware of the corresponding privilege identity than when it's the other way around. Mm. But I, I, I think, like Jesse said, there's also a degree of um, gunk extraction that goes into how that then gets represented on the page. Um, mm. I, I definitely do not have 24-7 um, thoughts that are novel quality just by virtue of being a woman or whatever. So. <laughs> um. I'd like to talk about how both Jenna and Ava are good at men in a calculated way. And um, it's interesting reading both of your novels that they, um, the characters pretty much use those exact words. Or um, it gives them a feeling of power. Um, but I'm wondering who really has the power in these relationships? I think it's the men, totally. Like, yeah. I think the world is built upon... Um, fooling women into thinking that the mechanisms for female happiness are like benefiting ourselves but mm. really at the end of the day it's benefiting men you know like people tell you as a young girl um be nice be accommodating um sit up straight don't talk out of line um get a good job etc etc you know there's so many sort of quotidian um instructions that we're given you know go to college, get a good education, and then get married, have children. You know, we have these systems built to teach girls how to be happy, you know, and the mm. movies all tell us that. Like, this, I'm still, like, I watch, like, uh, three or four movies a week. I'm obsessed with movies, and I'm still kind of so horrified and always full of grief by how heteronormative our movies are. Like, the, at, the end of the, at the end of each movie, I feel as though the lessons that we are still being taught is that if you have a family as a woman, that is what will bring you genuine happiness. And I am so sick of living in a world where like, I feel like there's something wrong with me for pursuing pursuits outside of parenthood and marriage mm -hmm. and not seeing that reflected in you know, our cultural um, artworks is really isolating. So mm. I think I tried to, like what I did with this book was try to just like fix that asymmetry of um, where one group of people are really just revering um, a very narrow perspective of what a good life can look like. Mm. Mm. Great. Yeah, and I, I think that, um, yeah, uh, Jenna is not interested in these things at all. Um, her focus is on uh, her, her career, like that's the thing that nourishes her. Or her career as a violin, violinist, which I suppose is career, but also um, her, her artistic pursuit. That's the thing that nourishes her more than, um, well, almost more than her relationships. It's like a central thing for her. So did you see that as something that was um, a different way of, of seeing a woman in the world and, and what she might value or what she might get nourishment from? I think um, the character of Jenna is really kind of... I took my sort of grievances from having too much desire and too much hunger for so many different 
areas in my life and put it on the page because like as a young woman to be hungry and to be to have desire on your own terms is still a very freaky thing for people to come across mm. especially men like a, yeah. a young woman who like owns her own sexuality and performs on her own terms um and you know has a lot of uh ambitions outside of centering him I think it still threatens men, mm. like th heterosexual mm -hmm. men. I think it really, like, it, it's something that obviously a lot of um, men won't admit, and um, but because it's just not PC to admit that. But um, deep down, I think um, we're still deeply uncomfortable as a society with young women who um, who just do whatever they want to do with their own bodies. But I guess, mm. like, um, with Jenna. Um, I'm still kind of conflicted about how she uses sex so much in the book because mm. um, as a young woman, to be sexually voracious is inherently dangerous mm. in a way that it's not for men. Yeah. Like you put yourself into positions where you are physically smaller. And so, you know, it's just, it's, it's something that I'm still really grappling with, I think. And I, I think it's one thing that I really lo loved about your books, both of you, is the way that um, these the relationships with men and and um, both of these women's, you know, they they both they love sex. They um, it's something that they you know openly say that they need and they pursue. It's it, but it's something that is both positive and also not positive for them. Uh, I think that um, yeah, it's it, the way that you write about that in a really complex manner. It's not just about you know sex as the physical, but sex in terms of what's going on underneath and the power dynamics is really great. Um, Nisha, uh, did, was that something that you deliberately set out to do when you were writing to explore that what's going on underneath um, with sex and and power dynamics? Not at all, really. I think I lead very much with dialogue in the surface. Mm. And once I'm confident that that feels um, sincere or I suppose something that's consistent even because you're not even at the point of cracking sincerity when you're just looking at what they're saying to each other, then I go back and I suppose make it a bit more of a novel because I'm <laughs> conscious that uh, the value of the form is ultimately that interiority that you can't easily offer to other media. So mm. I, I think once I'd set up what was happening between them, you know, then I went back and excavated it. But mm. equally, I, I think you can do that too, any aspect of a novel. And maybe the reason I did it with um, sex more than other relations is just because um, it's a bigger deal, I guess. Yeah, well, I felt like with your novel in particular, like that you really, you did that with all the relationships that like excavating what's going on underneath, you know, you both see... Um, how how Ava's conducting her friendships or, you know, even her work relationships, and then you have that, that voice underneath that is really just, like, analysing it all. Um, so I guess it sounds like for that's something that, like, the character comes first and the excavation comes second for you. Is, is that right? Yeah, definitely. I think I never write wanting to say anything in any kind of sociological or philosophical sense. I only want to put a few people in a room and get something happening between them. But then in order mm. to understand that properly, I have to think about what brought them there and what's driving them. And then 
having done that work anyway, it sometimes makes sense to lay it out in the final text so that um, makes the whole thing a bit clearer. Oh, that's interesting. So it's kind of a layering process then. You put them in the room, you see what happens, and then you go back and, um, yeah, fill in the subtext. <laughs> Great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, how about you, Jesse? It sounds like you, are, you were really driven by wanting to explore a certain set of ideas as, as a huge part yeah. in more than perhaps Nisha was. Yeah, Is that yeah. right? Yeah, I think... Um, I think I was like exactly the opposite of how you <laughs> approached Anisha. Um, I, I have, I've wanted to write a book that was really critical of what I was seeing were the problems with society and how young women are treated. Mm. Um, and like, um, what really troubled me was like the way. I think I was like, during the time I was writing this book, I went to the bar after an ultimate Frisbee game and I was telling this guy um, what I was trying to do. And I was like, so I want to write a book about a young woman who has a lot of sex and like is actually revered for it in the way that a guy would be. Mm. And then he was like, nah, it's not going to work. Like <laughs> get women, like if women have a lot of sex, um, they're not like marriage material. And I was yeah. like, well, that's fucked. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then he was like, and he was like about in his mid 40s and he said to me in when he was a kid like teenager he he had this goal of um, normalizing the word cunt mm -hmm. and then he was like look now I'm like 20 years later it's, people still like you know um freeze at that word you mm -hmm. know it's still not normalized so he was like saying it's not going to work like women will always be policed for their sexuality in a way that men won't and that kind of made me sad yeah yeah yeah. So, so does that mean that you then changed what you did as a result of that oh, conversation? Oh no, not really. No, I still wrote what I wanted to write, but um, it it made me it it kind of really it constantly makes me um, sad the fact that um, women are um, adjudicated differently to the way the, to the way that a man is. Like I'm every day I wake up and I'm like I know this is not an exaggeration. Mm. Every day I at least in one point of my day I wish I was a guy. Like I wish I moved in a male body because I could do things that I can't do in a female body. Yeah. And especially as an Asian female, mm. people police me differently. I'm mm. treated differently. And it's so yeah. subtle. And if, you're white, and if you're in a white body, you don't understand. I'm not saying like you can't try and understand, but it's hard because you have lived your whole life in a white body. And it's, these things are so subtle that you need to have lived in that body for decades to understand it. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, I, it's, it's a hard thing to, yeah. It's interesting that um, what you just said about that you wish, you, you know, you occasionally wish that you were a white man, obviously, because you would like to experience the world in a way that a white man does. And one thing that is really interesting and eerie parallel in both of your novels is that Ava and Jenna are both, their type is... Um, wealthy white men and they both date a banker or a banking <laughs> executive um, and have this, uh, yeah, uh, a relationship in which the power dynamics are very uh, uneven. Yeah. 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 Um, and I wonder, yeah, it, and it sounded to me like that is partly about wishing that they could be that person in that way that you just said, you know, that they could inhabit that body. And the next best thing is to, to date that person. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you think, Nisha? 
Yeah, I think so. I think, though, the things that it does to your mind, mm. um, seemingly, aren't maybe as desirable as the material advantages that come with it. But then you kind of need it to do that to your mind in order to peacefully enjoy the material advantages. Like, you can't mm. have a conscience and be a banker like the one in my novel. So um, <laughs> I, I think um, that way it kind of becomes clear throughout. Mm. And I guess um, it's interesting in, in your novel, Ava is really experiencing all of these material advantages in terms of being with Julian. You know, she um, moves into his apartment from her crappy, uncomfortable share house. Um, she uses his credit card, you know, while he's away. She's basically, you know, he's away for six months and she's living in this apartment and um, really, I guess, you know, t living all the advantages of his life. Um, but there, she has this constant commentary on that as well. She's not. She's both really comfortable with it, but not comfortable with it in the same at the same time. Would that be right? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I, I, I think that probably summarises her attitude to pretty much everything. In yeah, the novel. that's she's true. Extremely different character, and <laughs> and that was entirely for the pragmatic reason that it gives her a lot of thoughts to have, and I wanted it to be very interior focused. So I think um, that character trait just came about from how I wanted to centre the novel on individual psychology. But mm. I, I, you know, I, I don't know if it's something ideologically to be that conflicted about. You can think that it is irredeemably bad for people to have that kind of wealth of the suffering of others mm. and like that's not a, a thought that I'm at all conflicted about and I, I don't know if I present her as being conflicted about it but then um, because she's young and makes bad decisions she nonetheless keeps doing it and <laughs> I, I suppose um, <laughs> there's not much lesson to be learned on how to do better under capitalism from the novel it just kind of depicts that process of being well aware that you're participating in something bad and continuing to do so. <laughs> that that actually uh, leads me to you. You were saying that um, you were frustrated by um, the fact that there seems to be a requirement for if you're a young woman writing about a young woman who's making mistakes in the world, um, as you generally do as you're living your life. Um, that there is a There seems to be a requirement for that character to learn and grow from that um, by the end of the novel. Um, Nisha, what, what, how did you feel about that? Like, what annoyed you about that? Yeah, I, I think it's incredibly patronising. It assumes mm. that the only thing that authors can offer and that readers can accept is some sort of blueprint for moral growth when I think if you're old enough to read words of several syllables, you're probably old enough to enjoy vicarious experience. And we don't do that with TV. People don't go to the end of a TV show and go, but did the characters change in, in a positive way at the end? For TV, we're able to be like, it's just TV. So I think to some extent, it's just the way that English taught, ruining our ability to enjoy things in a more nuanced way than just are the characters people I admire at the end of it. I think. Um, the need to tally up lessons learned and apply them to your life is more a developmental thing than a literary thing. And then obviously, the more you're expected to be 
I suppose morally pure and a, a model for good behavior the more that pertains and like so many identity axes yeah so you feel like there's a pressure um to serve some sort of moral example or teach a lesson through your novel rather than just capture some you know capture a, a period of life yeah um what do you yeah, think yeah. Jess? yeah so I, i'm a i'm part of a book club and it's so interesting <laughs> i love it's the first book club where um, there is an equal distribution of men and women. Um, oh. Historically, yeah. Historically, <laughs> all of my book clubs have been mainly women. Mm. And it's so fascinating. Uh, straight, I should also say straight men are mm. part of, yeah, half of my book club. And it's so interesting whenever um, we do a book about a woman, um, the first thing they'll, like, if they, they, they always comment about a female character is, like, whether they liked her or not mm. and, like, whether she has... Um, become a better woman and what they're ostensibly saying I feel is like has she been um has she been palatably integrated reintegrated into society after mm. trauma or whatever or some messiness in her life has she like followed the rules and come mm. become back into like being a good mother or like being a good daughter or being a good wife and it really like I find that deeply insulting <laughs> so do you think that likability is partly about that maybe a narrator is allowed to be unlikable if they've learned their lesson by the end or? Um, Likeability is something that people never talk about when they talk about male characters or, mm. you know, male narrators. Um, Nausgaard does a lot of shit in his books, you know, <laughs> but, like, um, people don't... But people don't say, oh, I liked him, I didn't like him. Mm. You know, um, all of Norman Mailer and um, um, Philip Roth's characters are abominable. Mm. Um, I'm also being, like, uh, recent... I don't know if any of you guys have been watching the Woody Allen um, docos that have been coming out about him. Um, and I'm like, I just wa I saw the pilot and I, like, my whole worldview changed. And it's really conflicting because I fucking love Woody Allen films, but, mm. like, after watching the kind of person he is, I can't seem to separate how inextricably linked his characters are mm. and the way that they're so predatory towards young women and my love for... The, and, and his own life and then my own history of loving that kind of neurosis. It's charming, it's cute, because it's a guy. Um, but it's like, yeah, I, I feel like those kind of... Um, concessions that we give to these men are mm. not afforded to women. And that is just so... Um, heartbreaking to me and I kind of want to change that yeah 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 that's I mean that's interesting so you think men are, uh, are given a lot more license to create unlikable characters who don't learn a lesson yeah they're charming yeah. right like male characters who are flawed and have a lot of affairs oh yeah they're, they're they're cute they're flawed but you know women who sleep around are sluts and unlikable yeah. yeah, just yeah. any woman who plays on her own terms is unlikable. Mm. And I find that, like, the reception that I've had from this book has mm. um, been extraordinarily interesting because the first thing people will say is, I hate Jenna, she's so bad, she's, like, she does whatever she wants, she's selfish. Like, who, wh what is wrong with a woman being selfish? Yeah. Like, we need more women to be selfish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can see you nodding there, Nisha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I completely agree. And I... I think as well it's it just misunderstands um mm. what makes someone the protagonist of a novel yeah. like you need conflict and that conflict has to be related to the character because otherwise you're just creating this woman and having stuff happen to her which mm. is deeply uninteresting and you would then be criticized for having a flat character so yeah. it, it it just seems to me a way of saying 
why are you not creating women who exist merely to suffer due to outside forces? Which is to say, why are you not simply rewriting 19th century male novels? Which is a fairly easy, easily answered question, which is because they've already been written. Now let's have yeah. ones about women who cause their own problems and then try for better or worse to claw out of them. Or don't, to fall into self-destructive patterns and stay there because that happens in real life too. And if it happens in life, then it's surely a worthy subject of fiction. Absolutely. And I, I think, unlikeable, you know, whether a character is unlikable um, is not, shouldn't be a metric for judging a novel as well. Like, I mean, there's, there are two separate things here, I feel. There's mm. um, what are the metrics for likability for a woman, but also, like, why does a woman have to be likable um, for it to be a good novel? And I think you both kind of addressed uh, different aspects of that. So thank you. That was fascinating. Um, I feel a bit like the having just read your books together, I felt like the title of Jessie's book, A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing, could almost apply to both novels. Um, and loneliness um, is, is a theme in both of them. Um, and I wondered if you could we could talk a little bit about loneliness. Um, why do you think that we're ashamed of it? Because it is something that um, that we often don't talk about, don't admit to, um, and both of your characters experience it, but um, but do seem ashamed to voice it. Well, yeah, because nobody admits when they're lonely, right? It's mm. kind of lame and shameful mm. because mm. it's like I don't have friends, right? Yeah. Um, loneliness is like I feel as though loneliness, uh, the admission of loneliness, is almost um, the way in which like mental illness was kind mm -hmm. of not talked about 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. And now it's normalized, which is mm -hmm. good. Um, but yeah, um, when someone admits they're lonely, it's like, it's almost like someone has some invisible disease that you don't want to admit to because you think you'll catch it if mm -hmm. like, you know, um, if, if you stand too close to them or something, it's, yeah. it's kind of ludicrous. But, um, um, I think for me, loneliness has been like, um, this deep sense of knowing that I'm in a constant state of lack, like the world and my desires are just not coherent. Mm, um, mm. And there's a disjuncture between um, what I desire and what the world can actually give me on my own terms. And mm. it, that's why I like, that's why every day I wish I was a guy because like, I feel like I could, I would be more able to practice those desires in a way yeah. that I won't be judged. Yeah. Um, so the loneliness for me has been just trying to grapple with the sense that I have excessive needs. I'm a hungry woman in every mm. sense. Mm. Like um, I'm deeply ambitious and that um, the world is uncomfortable with seeing a young Asian female um, presented that way. And mm. it's just something I, I think I am constantly struggling with. Um, but, you know, if we all talk about being lonely more openly, maybe less of us would feel so lonely about our loneliness. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nisha, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that's a much more nuanced take on loneliness than um, I suppose the typical understanding of it is mm. just needing more company in such an amorphous sense, which is useless because <laughs> often it is, like Jesse said, just wanting to be recognized mm. or supported or... Mm validated or seen in a particular yeah. way there might be masses of people around you and you might still be incredibly lonely because those needs aren't being met I suppose so mm. uh, yeah like I think maybe that's why we've both arrived at these um quote-unquote difficult female narrators who 
don't have any lack of opportunity for a company in any broad sense, but it's, yeah, that need to um, take a place in the world that chimes true to them and just a sheer mass of people won't feel that. So, mm. yeah, I think I agree. More open discussion of loneliness and discussion of the exact terms that it takes place on and um, yeah. I, like how it links to broader problems yeah. because um that you know like jesse said it's, it's not just lack of I, I suppose social opportunities it's um lack of opportunities full stop absolutely it's so interesting hearing you both talk about loneliness in terms of context you know the context of the wider world that the characters are in, not just people around you, but whether you feel part of things, whether you feel um, seen and accepted. Um, one thing that I, I, I felt like both of your books um, were about young women who, um, who, who are living in a world that is not designed for them and they're feeling this constant need to calibrate themselves to, to fit, in, fit into those worlds and that part of that is, um, is, is about broader political, social context. Um, was, how do you both feel about that? Do you feel like that's, that was something that you were, you were looking to explore or found yourself exploring um, as part of your novels? Whoever would like to go first. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, I, I just wanted to write a character where people could take her on her own terms and be treated seriously. Yeah. Because that's something I've struggled with. Like people, like when I worked in law, um, people never took me seriously. They saw me and they were like, oh, there's the secretary. Because, you know, they've never seen a female barrister. They've never seen an Asian female barrister or wow. a lawyer, you know. So, like, people box, people slide you into, you know, at least this is my experience, slide you into these boxes that they have in their minds because um, they're not used to someone with my face who um, is in a position of power, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I wanted to play with the idea that a woman, the consequences of a woman who, like, is... Who who is taught as a young woman that the 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 world functions in a way in which like the only pathway to power for a woman is through sex yeah and like yeah. what happens when she pursues sex in that way and it's you know it's destructive because the world hasn't given her any other alternatives mm. that's really interesting that idea of sex as an as access to power. a world of pri yeah. power and privilege because that's obviously yeah across both books. Um, yeah, I, I also wanted to just, uh, I'm going to throw to questions in just a minute, by the way. So if you have a question, please do line up um, at the mic. Um, just one last question I'll ask you guys before I give the opportunity to the audience is, you've both talked about the importance of representing unrepresented groups. Um, Nisha as a queer and autistic woman and Jessie as an Asian Australian woman. What does that mean to you in terms of your potential to inspire others and create change? And do you feel that a responsibility that comes with that? Did you want to speak to that first, Nisha? Yeah, so I think responsibility is, for me anyway, quite a complex thing because mm. you don't want to feel it, right? You want yeah. to be able to um, take ownership of a space in the same way as anyone else, mm. but at the same time looking at the reality that you find yourself surrounded by um, 
it's hard not to care. Like one thing that annoys me a lot about autistic representation is I feel such pressure that I don't think non-autistic people who write about autistics do at all because they're not engaged enough in, in the community to even know what the issues are. So mm. things like Sears, film, music, that yeah. basically the entire autistic community was up in arms against um, deservedly from the trailer. I haven't seen the full thing, so maybe the trailer just takes the worst moments of the film and collates them, but it's not a promising trailer. Point being, um, <laughs> uh, like the fact that that has me then thinking, well, I can't ever write an, autist an explicitly autistic character because what if I do it wrong? What if I further harm the community? So I, I think it can be quite a stifling thing, but mm. I'm pretty sure the solution isn't to look the other way. It's to um, try to find some middle ground where you're conscious of the issues, but willing yeah. to take risks. Because ultimately, I think the problem with representation, like sometimes things are just bad in and of themselves, but more often it's how they fit into the broader cultural sphere, right? So. Mm. Um, in that way, like it's just creating a particular version of something and that particular version won't speak for everyone, mightn't even speak for you. But, yeah. um, it, it, you know, the more of those we can build up, the more there's a varied tapestry. And then if one person does one thing to a group that you don't like, then it's a lot less impactful than if that's the only time that group's ever visible and being shown in that way. Absolutely. And that's really interesting. You've spoken to both aspects of responsibility. And one is if you're writing a character that's representing a group that you're a part of, and the other is just owning that identity publicly so that other people can perhaps see themselves reflected in you or you're adding to that tapestry that people might be able to identify with. Mm. Um, yeah. Jessie, what do you think? Um, I don't really think about responsibility because I feel like when people ask someone in a pub with a public with a public profile about responsibility i feel like they're saying something along the lines of like um what it means to be a role model and i don't yeah. see myself as a role model at all mm -hmm. and i don't see my character in the novel as a role model i just see her as another iteration of what it can be to be a woman which is what we just need more of right we just need yeah. more female characters written from the female perspective mm -hmm. um and like, I, I, you know how I keep going on about being selfish. I am someone who admits I'm, like, deeply selfish in the sense that the only responsibility I have to my own life is that I live it as much as I can on my own terms without hurting those people that, that I love around me because, mm. um, because it's only, like, in the last 50 years where women have had the choice to live on their own terms, right? Like I, mm. I'm constantly thinking about my mother and her mother and my mother's mother's mother who had like, they had seven, eight, nine children. They were bound to um, their circumstance and their context, their historical context. And like, I'm not, I'm, I'm liberated in a way that my grandmother could not possibly have imagined. Mm. And that breaks my heart, but it also um, compels me to live a life where I am owning my own choices and mm. like taking that freedom that I can have that she didn't have mm. and doing what I want with it and yeah. not caring what other people think because yeah. that's a freedom that they were not afforded and yeah it, it's very yeah. like it's very deep to me that no, concept. I and, and that's, you know, I feel like everyone should be allowed to, well, everyone should be allowed to live as if they're a straight white man, right? You know, in that sense, you know, that of living your life with a responsibility to those around you, like, you know, and to, to the people who are close to you, but um, also living on your own terms, just, just as, you know. 
I, I think responsibility can be, you know, a responsibility in terms of, you know, representing a particular identity. That can be something that can be really constricting because it could, you could make you feel like you then need to follow particular rules or, you know, it can box you in, I imagine. So I think it's, it's good to maybe think about these things but also good to... Um, allow yourself that freedom to then do what you would want to do anyway. Yeah. By I've never liked the concept of role models. I think it's unhealthy because it puts people on a pedestal and people are human beings. Human beings are not perfect. And the mm. moment someone does something wrong, they like strip them down and cut them mm. ruthlessly. Like it's just, it's not a healthy, like I don't have any role models. Like I, I, I have um, traits in people that I want mm. to uh, mirror. Yeah. And that's, I think, a healthy way of b trying to become a better person. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, we have a question. Yes, th thank you very much. Um, I'd like to ask Jessie a question. Um, I think it must take great courage to live true to yourself in the way that you've talked about. And I wonder, do you consider yourself to be a courageous person? And if so, how do you conjure that courage? <laughs> uh, not at all. <laughs> um, I am not a courageous person. I think um, I think uh, someone who's courageous is uh, I don't even know what that really means, right? I I I thought about it. I, I once gave a talk a few years ago about that word um, because it has correct courage has the word rage in it. R A G E. Mm. And I think I'm more of a ra person with rage. And it's not something that's palatable to people, so I don't admit it freely. But, like, um, I, I am, I am um, I'm driven by uh, anger, I think. I know it's, like, not palatable for people to, you know... Um, like, when you come across an angry person, especially an angry woman, you feel as though they're irrational and you can't have a conversation with them. But my anger is... Um, is not like that. Like, I'm not angry in the sense that I'm irrational and I don't want to hear about every other person's converse, like, their perspective. I'm angry in that I want to change the world and that, um, that anger is what is going to help me, like, try and ignore the people who don't believe in what I want to try and do. And um, I think that's where I get a lot of my strength from, just, like, trying to think I'm... Um, buoyed by my anger, I'll do what I have to do in this world and, like, try and ignore the people who are not on board with me. Yeah. 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 Actually, I was going to ask both of you a question about anger in the young women in your novels, so I'm glad that that was brought up. And maybe just before I throw to the next question, I wonder if um, you would like to address that, Nisha, just that idea of, you know, the anger in... Ava, in terms of just being living in a world that's not designed for her, where she has to work to fit in, that you know, I feel like that's where the anger comes from. Did was we did, were you conscious of writing a, a, a character who was angry? Um, yeah, I definitely um, noticed this underpinning of aggression in mm. her relations with those around her, more justified in some cases than in others, mm. and. I think that anger links very much to hostility, a sense that people really have to earn their trust with her. It's not mm. a default. So I think I tried to show the ways in which her anger is a completely rational response to the world that she's found herself in, but at the same time show ways that um, it's not 
always serving her with people who aren't out to harm her, but, um, I, you know, never from the standpoint that she's therefore crazy to be angry, but yeah. rather from the standpoint that one of the tragedies about how angry the world um, makes people, most people really, mm. most of us are marginalized in some way, mm. uh, it, it then um, sabotages us in our attempts to love each other. And that's not something that can be easily thought at all, which is, I suppose, what makes it a good topic for a novel. No, absolutely. And I guess once you've turned something like that on, it's not, you know, or once you're feeling anger, it's not like you're going to, you know, judiciously direct that only at things that deserve it. It's it's something that's simmering in the background and may also come out in unhelpful ways. So, yeah. Um, we have another question. This has been such a thrilling discussion, by the way, so I just wanted to say that before I go to a question. <laughs> Thank um, you. I wondered if you had... You were you had certain works that you were either writing against or mm. writing in conversation with? Um, that's a great question. Jazzy. Uh, I think I wanted to write, like, the female version of um, American Psycho. <laughs> um, obviously, you know, I will never be as um, revered as... Ellis, um, mm. but like that, that work has so much cultural cachet. Even yeah. though you know, 20, 20 years now, I don't know when was it written, ninety one. Um, yeah. yeah, even though you know it's been two decades ish um, since it's come out, it's still and, and like you know people are now saying obviously it's there's a lot of deeply problematic elements about it. Um, I wanted to just be as ruthless and cunning and like. Um, violent not physically violent but mm. violent in the sense of like someone who's taking their desires onto the page and um not asking for permission or i i just feel like as um i wrote this book and really just thought i'm writing it for myself mm. like i'm mm. writing it for myself or anyone who also is as hungry as i am and like it it's it's so much fun because everything that we do on a day-to-day -day life i feel as though it's like um police in a way mm. and there's so much freedom in writing something where i get to just build my own world mm. and um kind of ignore <laughs> ignore the the realities of what it means to be a woman mm. yeah mm. You're, you're living in this world that you're creating or that you've created yeah while and you're imagining writing. what yeah. it would be like for a woman to be so like um violent in pursuing her desires mm. yeah mm. i'm kind of saying why you were saying you loved a, a promising young woman when we were talking oh yeah <laughs> yeah everyone should go see promising young woman by the way if you haven't that is true it's yeah. just it's such a good especially take the men in your lives to go see it because it's the straight men to see your, because it's such a good lit litmus test um as to like how they actually um, if they're a feminist or not because I've like taken some of my guy friends to see it and some of them were like oh it was so misandrous the other half were like no I totally get it um, so yeah you should totally go see it absolutely and now I just have to boast that I my 21 year old son took me to see it so yeah <laughs> um Nisha were, did you were there any works that you were particularly writing against or inspired by when you were writing your book not at the time, mm. but looking at it in hindsight, I think um, what Jesse was saying about Brad Easton Ellis, I think my novel perhaps had a similar relationship to Martin Amos, just that idea of um, male arsehole, first person narrators, mm. and um, letting a woman do that also, not necessarily wanting to say it is therefore aspirational to be this way and the goal of feminism should 
be to make a woman do that because I rail against the concept of role models too, but just to mm. see what happens because you're curious on something so well established as a genre, but yet um, the people within that genre are so limited, so expanding it a bit. So, like looking at it now, I think actually if there's perhaps more of a resemblance to Amos's The Rachel Papers than I ever would have thought if that question had prompted me to suddenly consider it. Just like this um, <laughs> young, smart Alex sort of using the people around them in quite a manipulated but also naive way and yeah. maybe being a little bit too fond of their own wit, but you mm. can also see why it's a trait that helps them um, get along with people when they don't have many other redeeming features. So, <laughs> like, that's the fascinating thing about tradition, I suppose. You can write um, to it and against it without consciously doing so at the time, but then later it seems quite clear. Absolutely. And, you know, I have to say that I understand why Ava loves her own wit because I loved her wit. So, yeah. And um, I, I also just have to mention that... Um, the American Psycho obviously is so embedded in our culture because both novels reference Patrick Bateman. Do we? Yes. Oh, I, I don't remember. Just yeah, you know, in terms of when you're um, with the the bankers, the banking right. executives. Yeah, I know. Kind of it's reference crazy. It. Yeah. I think yeah. I think um. Obviously, it's a you know a rich white man kind of a you know reference point. <laughs> yeah. No. Totally. Um. And it's subconsciously ingrained in us, right? Mm. I think um. I, I'm still mourning the fact that women are um, kind of rewarded for being beautiful and young in a way that we're not rewarded for anything else. Mm. In the way that men are rewarded for having a lot of money. Yeah. In the way that they're not revered for anything else. Yeah. Like these are, we have sexual capital, they have capital, capital. Mm. And like we will inevitably lose our capital because, you know, we age. Yeah. But, you know, money just accumulates and like, <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's such a devastating realization that, you know, I w my capital will like slowly reduce and his will, you know, accumulate. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, I guess I try and fight against that by just being relevant by writing books. <laughs> well, I think your intellectual capital, luckily that only, you know, in, improves as you True. age, I hear. So, yes. Um, and I think it's really interesting that both of your books actually were written, even though perhaps not consciously, as you said, Nisha, were written in as a way of writing the kind of novels that um, people, that you've enjoyed about, you know, entitled young men. That's really interesting, you know, with the... Um, I wish we could talk for longer, but of course um, it, we've come to the end of our session. So I would just like to thank Jesse and Nisha so much for being here talking to us and for writing their marvellous novels. Um, and thank all of you for coming out here this morning to the first session of the day. Um, I would like to also just remind you that Jessie will be signing copies of her book A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing at the book tent afterwards and that Nisha's book Exciting Times is of course also available at the book tent to purchase and I would really encourage you to if you haven't already um, buy and read both of these books. Um, and I'd just also like to remind you that um, when you're moving around the garden, especially as you're making your way from here to the book signings, the book tent and the catering area, please maintain social distance and follow any directions from our COVID marshals. Uh, thank you so much for being here. <laughs> thank you.